and I said, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of religious freedom? From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. And I was thinking of all these flowery things that they might say, but they didn't say anything positive. The thing that they all unanimously kind of agreed upon was anti-LGBTQ. Rachel Lazar leads Americans United for Separation of Church and State an effective legal and advocacy nonprofit organization with a track record of defending church-state separation in the courts, in Congress, and in state legislators for over 75 years. On April 22nd and 24th, Americans United is convening an important summit for religious freedom. We'll get the details from Rachel Lazar later in the hour. We've seen some uh, some books in some of these libraries. I mean, you're talking about kids in middle school. Some of the stuff that has ended up there, incredibly, incredibly disturbing stuff. You can't teach history that's being used to pursue an ideological agenda. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. A comprehensive diagram of the various recent attacks on academic freedom in Florida would look like a March Madness bracket. The DeSantis administration seems hell-bent on building a culture war presidential campaign by casting dark shadows on academic diversity, inclusion, and even acknowledgement of history in the Sunshine State. This week, I'll talk with Matt Hartley, the very busy director of the Interface Center at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Matt Hartley is a former board member and chair of the Interfaith Center of Northeast Florida. He's the director of the Interfaith Center at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, where he can see up close the impact some of the DeSantis administration academic policies are having. Matt, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you here. Now, I know you are representing Matt Hartley and not speaking in the name of the university. Things on campus probably have changed in recent months. Can you can you talk a little bit about what the feeling is of someone who's been doing this work for a while and and what it feels like uh, in the past, say, six months? Yeah, Paul, um, frankly, right now, I have the feeling of dominoes falling and it's it's kind of grim and and concerning at the moment um it has been since december when areas of diversity equity and inclusion and in universities got requests from uh, the state government for information about their programs i have a feeling many other people felt the way that i did at that time that we knew something was coming uh, that an attack on our diversity and inclusion programs from the, the governor was coming. And indeed, a couple of weeks later, uh, the governor announced his intention to abolish diversity and inclusion programs in public universities in Florida. And at the University of North Florida, that includes the Interfaith Center, uh, which does religious and non-religious diversity work on campus. And of course, some people are surprised to learn that that's where we are categorized in the university And some even wonder if, for that reason, we can um, dodge this attack. And to that, I say diversity and inclusion is central to what we do in the Interfaith Center. Um, Our approach um, to religion um, is about including people of diverse religious identities, especially those who might not feel like they always have a voice 
at a predominantly white institution, at a institution in the South where, you know, Christianity, evangelical Christianity is oftentimes the most common expression of religion you find on campus. Um, And so we do that interfaith work from that lens and we're proud to. So when the governor comes at these programs, he's coming at our students who uh, who want to do uh, diversity and inclusion uh, interfaith work. And in, fi- in fact, their identities are woven in with all of these other uh, I- gender, cultural uh, identities that are being attacked by the government. Yeah. I mean, it, w- what we don't want to get into is like, oh, let's just set religion aside because r- religion is a special category, although it, of course, is its own category. And one could make the argument that this is a direct attack on freedom of religion and the expression of freedom of religion and the diversity of religion that is the mainstay of American um, democracy, uh, one of the mainstays of American democracy. And so it is a, a very notable fact that religious diversity in all its forms, and my guess is, you know, you know, as you know, I, I worked in this area for quite a while and, and loved working on academic campuses. It's part of what makes good citizens is uh-huh. to that people understand diverse religious traditions as well as other forms of diversity, and they go out and become leaders in their community, welcoming all, including all, having some sort of familiarity because they met people of diverse backgrounds in a higher education setting. So it's part of like what it means to train educated and capable leaders for society. And here, here it's being like cut off at the knees. It just feels to me like not only an attack on religion, not only an attack on diversity, but an attack on education. Yeah. And we see that across the board in the state. Obviously we're taking the higher ed attacks um, and it's not just diversity and inclusion. It's our faculty who are facing attacks on tenure but it's in our K through 12 as well. And I've got two kids in public schools as well. So talk to me about that. I'll be completely frank as a gay dad. Like I never thought of Florida in this way until the last like three years. And all of a sudden I like, I would never take my kids to Florida. You know I mean? Just because it feels like it's a threatening environment for kids. That must be a wild place for someone who's trying to bring up well-rounded, open-minded, open-hearted kids and have the the schools not as your friend in that way. And I can't even imagine what it must feel like right now for our our parents of transgender kids and um, how they're dealing with all the attacks on transgender care in our state. What does it feel like for you to have the kids that you want to get the best education and to literally have book bans? That pretty much anybody can say, oh, you know what? I don't like that rainbow flag. I don't like all those brown faces. This is making me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, we can't have that. And it's not the kids. It's the parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So personally, you know, I have kids who have been involved with Gay Straight Alliance activities, and those have lost resources in our local school district because – of uh, the school district getting nervous and ending partnerships with local agencies. And so my kid has been deprived of those resources, but keeps on going. And it's amazing to see how our kids are so resilient in the face of these book bans and of the attacks on the LGBTQ community. But of course, they're also taking the, the grief of all this and it's really sad and it makes you wonder whether you should stay in a state like this. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, your kids and they didn't ask for it and I, I'm not glad it's happening, but they're getting an early lesson on what it means to stand up against encroaching, you know, and I hate to use this word, but our, we had Jeff Charlotte on last week and he used the word, he's been avoiding the word for 20 years, but he said, this is encroaching fascism. It is people insisting that there is one way to do things and other ways will not be welcome or tolerated. I was just in uh, Germany with a campus ministry group over spring break, and we saw some of the history. The Germans are very good about telling their history in public and about kind of saying, let's not repeat these things. As you look at some of the early days, both of the Nazi regime and then the early days of, of East Germany and the Soviet regime there, 
there's just too many eerie similarities to what we see happening in Florida right now. And as a friend said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm, mm. Well, and it's interesting, like, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Germany um, and right next to the Brandenburg Gate is this memorial of Jews killed in Europe. I mean, they are very intentional about kind of centering what happened rather than what we're seeing across the country, but like epitomized in Florida, which is an erasure of history in order to make some sort of um, mythical history, which we can't build a society on a lie. You know, we have mm-hmm. to go into the truth and then build from there. I, and you, you know, you're, you're in an academic setting, which is dedicated to helping young minds engage with the history, with facts and forge a life and forge a career and forge a nation. I'm just wondering how, how are your students who are part of all of the groups? My guess is that if they're involved in your center, they're really concerned about what this portends for the rest for society. Yeah, so uh, the Interface Center is a part of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, which includes the Women's Center, the LGBTQ Center, um, which is a nationally recognized center. And we have students who are involved with both of those centers. And so, again, their identities can't be siphoned off into they're just religious. Um, And so some of them are feeling directly under attack. And what I find with these students that come to Interfaith Work on campus is there is an incredible generosity among these students. There's an incredible mutual curiosity, and it is intentionally inclusive in a way that goes against any accusations that are hurled at us uh, that we're indoctrinating. Because in fact, these are students who would have every reason to say, we don't want to have anything to do with anyone that in any way is anywhere close to the people who are hurting us, but they intentionally always try to include people in conversations so that they can understand better what's going on, including evangelical Christians who they may feel really nervous about if they are not that identity. And then on the other hand, we have evangelical Christians on our campus who have been a part of helping build the Interface Center since its beginning. And so we've been kind of a remarkable campus where people on different places of the political and theological spectrum really have had difficult free speech together. And there's people out there trying to say that they're going to cut this out when we've already been doing it. This is kind of the part of the hollowing out of our civic institutions. If your students who are learning how to have difficult conversations, who are learning, you know, to humanize people who are politically in opposition, but have opportunities to talk with them because they're on the same campus. And to hollow that out means like, what are these citizens going to do when they get out there? And I just find this like to be very, very like long-term, terribly short-sighted thinking and dangerous. And one of the ways we frame a lot of this work, which is not the only way to frame it, but when you look at the rhetoric of Governor DeSantis, this Christian nationalist, I'm going to put my, the armor of God on me and anybody who's opposed to me is called, the, you know, using the, the juxtaposing the devil with the left and putting the left in there. And, you know, it really is a kind of um, us versus them. It's a death match and he's determined to win. I just, I, I'm curious to what degree... Does that framework feel real to you? And how do you imagine a way forward, given what's happening in your state? It's hard to imagine a, a way forward right now. I, I always start local. So Jacksonville, Florida has a, over a hundred year history of interfaith cooperation. We have an organization called One Jacks that was a part of the university until Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they've had to make their break from the university because their bread and butter is diversity and inclusion work, and it was beginning to get blocked. And so they were an independent organization before. They're now going independent again. But they're they're kind of the steward of that 100-year history. And then there are other organizations like the Interface Center in Northeast Florida, And then more recently, the the Interfaith Center over the last decade at the university. And so I look local and see people have always been building these alternative communities of mutual curiosity 
that can stand up to anti-Semitism, to Islamophobia, to all of these supremacies. And people of all faiths have been a part of it. I mean, one of the Baptist churches in town was the place where people, before they had a mosque, Muslim folks were able to pray because they were invited in by the Baptist congregation. So we've been doing this work of bringing people together in faith coalitions. I think that's where we've got to continue. Our Black churches know what's up. The last couple of weeks locally, I've heard several Black preachers locally in Jacksonville calling out what's happening with Black history in our state. I'm one person, and our program at the university is one program. But when we build these coalitions locally, we can start to turn the tide in our community. And I think that's where it starts when we want to make an impact statewide. The governor has a supermajority in the state right now. He's going to get some of what he wants, but I'm in it for the long haul. This is the state that I've lived in since I was eight years old, and I believe that we're better together. And I think these fusion coalitions with interfaith and then bringing in other elements of, uh, of our diverse state that we can change the tide, but it's going to take some smart and difficult organizing over a longer amount of time. Mm. Matt, I think that's so great. I, I really, the perfect answer. I, and I just, I absolutely agree. Just so you know, Interfaith Alliance, where I'm the president, just uh, founded an affiliate in Southwest Florida. And at the right moment, there might be an opportunity to have conversation to continue to build power because one of the things they saw is that we don't have any organization here that is counteracting some of what's happening in our mm-hmm. area. And we need to we need to raise up especially the faith voice saying, no, this doesn't represent the faith voice. Uh, for mm-hmm. all of us. Actually, there's a different faith vision of interfaith cooperation, respecting diversity and, and welcoming it and viewing it as a strength. And, and that feels to me like a very American way. What gives you hope right now? Uh, my students always give me hope. Uh, I'm a lifelong educator for a reason. When I look at the way that our students have responded to the state saying, there's something wrong with diversity and inclusion. Our student government said, well, let's ask the students. And they got over 800 students to reply to a survey, overwhelmingly saying that they support diversity and inclusion on campus. And the students did that. When I see the way that our interfaith students carry their work on campus of bringing together people of different faiths to, to continue to celebrate our life together, even in the midst of these attacks. Right now, we're planning an Eid celebration at the end of Ramadan with our Muslim Student Association. And the way that our interfaith community rallies around these communities and to see our our students who are LGBTQ students of faith, who, you know, it's, it's so hard sometimes to navigate that identity in our faith communities and the strength that they show in sharing their voice um, to say, we're here, you know, we exist and we're not only do we exist, but we're, we're, we're fine. We're good. We're wonderful. We're sacred. All of these voices, that's wind in my sails. That's how I keep going. Mm. I love that. And I, I love it especially because I used to surprise people because I was like, the reason I have hope is, again, I said the exact same thing. My students, when I was working at Princeton, I was like, these are curious people. They are engaged. They want to be in conversation. They want to learn. I mean, there's always a, a tendency among, you know, the, those of us of a certain age, you're, you're younger than me, but you know, those of us, <laughs> oh, the young generation, you know, oh, you know, and in fact, they're the w- place where we, we can really turn to, for example, and for opportunity. So Matt Hartley is a former board member and chair of the Interfaith Center of Northeast Florida. He is the director of the Interfaith Center at University of North Florida in Jacksonville. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on State of Belief. Thanks, Paul. It was a pleasure talking to you. I so appreciate you bringing light to these important issues. Up next, the Summit for Religious Freedom. I'll talk with Rachel Lazar, president of Americans United, which is organizing the event. 
If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. Rachel Lazar is president and CEO of the nonprofit Americans United for Separation of Church and State. On April 22nd through 24th, the organization is presenting a Summit for Religious Freedom in Washington, D.C. and online, and you can join. So we're talking to Rachel today about that conference and also the wider and absolutely critical work of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Rachel, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much, Paul. It's so great to be with you and, of course, our dear, dear long-term friends, Interfaith Alliance, who we've partnered with forever. Thank you so much. Well, let's start actually with some history of Americans United. I'm not sure everybody really understands what a long important history it has in this country. Can you talk about like the founding principles? How did Americans United start and some of the some of the driving force between why it's still so important today? Yes, I'd love to. So Americans United for Separation of Church and State was founded 75 years ago by a group of religious folk from across different ideological and theological backgrounds. There was a group of Methodist pastors in Chicago who were very important to our founding and seminary deans and the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and Seventh-day Adventists and someone from who was a public education leader who was the, the only woman actually who was involved in our founding and she actually died the same year that I was born. So I feel a special attachment to her. And I am the first female leader of our group in our 75 years and the first non-Christian leader I'm Jewish of the group. Mm. Um, We were really founded to guarantee the separation of church and state, of religion and government as the only way to protect true religious freedom in this country. Um, And our founders actually had a really deep understanding of our issue. And so from the beginning, they were public school advocates, for example, because they understood that public schools were places where you could go no matter what your religious background, racial background, level of ability, and expect to be treated equally. So that was part of our manifesto, which is pretty cool, um, when we were announced in a New York Times article, um, which was fun back in the late 1940s. Um, But really, we were founded to protect your and my and every single Americans, no matter what they practice is religious freedom. Here's the one catch though, Paul. So long as they're not using religious freedom to harm others, right? So protecting your right to believe and practice as you choose and live as you, as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Right. I, I, I think there's a there's a kind of a truism in American uh, law, which is uh, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. And I feel like that's actually a really good analogy for religious freedom. Your right to religious freedom is absolutely unalienable until it it hits my faith or my life or my and it, it's just really important. That's like such an important distinction. And as a Baptist myself, you know, the importance of separation of church and state was foundational to the understanding of the Baptist tradition. So it's not surprising to me that back then the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as I'm sure Northern Baptists were involved, and you all have been fighting for that principle ever since. And so it's so great that you're creating this opportunity, this Summit for Religious Freedom, which is really going to be an important time for, I think, for us to kind of take back in some ways religious freedom. When people think of religious freedom today, it's almost like, unfortunately, it has become synonymous with people just refusing service, 
right now to queer people, but you could, you know, you can extrapolate that all kinds of different other ways. So talk to me about what people can expect um, on April 22nd to the 24th. And I'll say again, this, there are still places available in person in DC, but you can also sign up online. And, and, and so we're, we're encouraging people to consider joining. I, I can't resist. I can't resist because you're saying so many juicy things. Um, but just take you up on, a, on just a couple of quick things that you that you just said. One is the way people are equating religious freedom with anti-queer stuff and just harming other people. And I just wanted to tell you a story of when a couple of years ago, a class from Stanford University, like young college students, visited me at the office for spring break. And I did a little focus group for them. And I said, What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of religious freedom, right? And I was thinking of all these flowery things that they might say, but they didn't say anything positive. The thing that they all unanimously kind of agreed upon was anti-LGBTQ. That was their association with religious freedom. And that's a really sad day for America. And frankly, a really sad day for any of us who value faith in America and, you know, don't want it equated. Faith is supposed to be about love, not about hatred, right? I'm the kind of Christian is like, love your neighbor. And I don't, you know, I'm not, my, my life's mission is not to make everybody Christian. So that's not my goal. But if that was my goal, yeah. The idea that Christianity and religion, Christians using religious freedom against people, which turns off so many people. I mean, it's just terrible. It's like a, it's like the it worst. Really, it so, really is. so, and, and, and of course that it does, I, unfortunately it doesn't surprise me, you know, yeah. uh, unfortunately it really, you know, that is not surprising. And so, yeah. so this is the segue to the summit, right? Because yeah. summit Great. for religious freedom is taking back the concept of religious freedom. It's the hub for our collective fight for true religious freedom, the type that enables all of us to live as ourselves, free from anyone else's religious dictates, and to believe as we choose. So this will be the hub of that collective fight for religious freedom, for church-state separation, and for so many of the issues that depend on the wall of separation, right? And I like to say, if you believe in LGBTQ equality, if you believe in thriving public schools, if you believe in abortion rights and reproductive freedom, if you believe in racial justice and the rights of religious minorities and the rights of the non-religious, if you believe that there should be books on our shelves in our public libraries, if you believe that our public policy should be guided by science during a pandemic, if you believe in continuing our democracy, then you too are a church-state separationist. You just might not know it yet. And it's mm. imperiled. It's imperiled in our country today. And so are all of the rights that sit on that wall that will topple the more we, we eviscerate that separation. So that's what yeah. this conference is about, all of the above. And it's exciting because it's going to bring us all together because we need each other in this fight and we need to be loud and proud together about the importance of the separation of religion and government. Absolutely. I think it's really, it's crucial and it's, I think it's, it's partially legal, but you know, unfortunately we have, you know, I, I hate to say it as someone who, you know, grew up venerating the Supreme court because of my great grandfather who was, who sat on the court, but now I just don't feel like we can trust the Supreme Court to protect this separation. So in some ways, it's going to become about messaging to the American people and and really like making sure that we are we are saying what we're saying clearly and together so that people recognize what's at stake. What will happen, I, I fear, you know, come the June decision in the you know freedom of expression case that they're calling freedom of expression, but it's really, you know, a, a, you know, underlying is about religion. The way I'm viewing it is like, maybe you're going to be legally allowed to do it, but it doesn't mean you should do it. And, you know, I mean, and we're still going to have to fight at, at every point, but we also need to win the kind of the hearts and minds of Americans to recognize that this is this is just not the way to create a fabric of a society 
It's just not, you know, to to be able to refuse service to people who you don't agree with. I mean, this is a really dangerous uh, road to go down. Yeah. And I love that you're taking on really what is one of the hardest battles for us to win on, really, which is denial of service. I mean, it's amazing to me how many folks are willing to say, well, you can just go down the block and get services somewhere else. And when you try to help them understand not just the access harm, but also the dignity harm in American society, which de Tocqueville told told us values equality more than anything else. And you draw an analogy to race, right? Like then they maybe begin to get it, but they still somehow divert back to a place where it's okay to turn away queer people, for example. And here's the here's the argument, though, right? And here's what people need to understand, the church-state violation. When our government, like in Colorado, let's say, right, which is where 303 Creative is taking place, they have non-discrimination laws for public accommodations. This, the state has passed protective laws. They've said, this is the kind of place that we want to be as, as this state in America, And when they give these private businesses an exemption from complying with the law, they are giving special favor to that religion over others. And so when, for example, Charlie Craig and David Mullins, a couple who are excited to be tying the knot and committing to each other, show up at the bakery, right, they are being asked by their state with their tax dollars to pay the cost of the baker's religion. And that isn't okay. That's the government favoring one religion over another in America. That's yeah. not allowed. That's how the legal it, It's goes. also just the, you know, it le- what will that lead to? And it just is, it does not create, a, you know, as as people living in a democracy, we're always going to be interacting and uh, with people who we disagree with. But that's the burden of a democracy. That's the burden of being together. And it's a burden that we should bear gladly because we're allowed to be free in our own way. And I just feel like the, this is such a dangerous path. The Summit for Religious Freedom, April 22nd, 24th. How can people register? What's the best yeah, way thanks, for people Paul. to find yeah, out about so it? So you should go to thesurf.org, the srf.org. And that's where you can sign up and register. There are just a few slots left to come in person. So please sign up soon. And you can also sign up and attend a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it online. And we are making this event radically inclusive. So if you feel that you can't afford to pay the fee even to sign up online, You apply for a scholarship and you will get one. And we will make sure that you can be part of this summit because it's really for all of us. So firstly, the concept of it is the three C's. It's to be collaborative, concurrent, and continuous. So the collaborative part is this is something that we are doing in partnership with so many of our wonderful allies, including Interfaith Alliance. Thank yeah, you very Interfaith much Alliance is a sponsor. Thing. I should mention Interfaith Alliance <laughs> is a sponsor of this uh, event and we're totally it's, behind it. You're wonderful. It's fantastic that you are. There's a number of different organizations who are going to be presenting breakout sessions at the conference, including groups like Dying Out Loud on Compassion and Dying, Sister Reach, which is a reproductive freedom group in Tennessee and also around the country, the National Women's Law Center, right, gender equity leaders, Catholics for Choice, the Anti-Defamation League, the Baptist Joint Committee, and so many others. So that's the that's the C, that's the collaborative part, which is so important because, again, we can't fight this fight against white Christian nationalism and religious extremism alone. We need each other. And that's what this conference is trying to do to bring bring us together. The second C is concurrent. So we want it to be radically inclusive, this summit. So we have this virtual attendance option with scholarships available online, right? And you can attend all the keynote sessions and a curated selection of all of our breakout sessions. So that's the second C, concurrent. And the third C is sort of fun. It's a little, um, it's a little different for a conference, which is it's supposed to be continuous. We want it to be continuous. You know, you show up at a conference often, you go... And then it's like, okay, that's it for the year. 
Well, we don't want to have it be it. We want to have a continuing place to educate folks and to bring people together. We've already hosted two well-attended webinars, including one in early March with Robbie P. Jones, the founder of Public Religion Research Institute, on his fascinating partnership with the Brookings Institute on a poll on white Christian nationalism. And we will continue these opportunities to come together throughout the year until the next SURF Summit for Religious Freedom. So that's the three C's. couple more really quick things. There's going to be two really fun live podcasts recorded from the summit. One that's called Boom Lawyered with Jessica Mason, Piklo, and Amani Gandhi, which is a reproductive rights and gender equity podcast. And the other one is called Straight White American Jesus with Brad. Brad. Brad yeah. Anisha. So we're going to have those being recorded again. The conference is April 22nd through April 24th. The lobby day is already filled up, which is awesome, but sad for anyone who wanted to join us. But next year, so that's going to be on the Monday and we're going to take it to the halls of Congress to advocate for the passage of the Do No Harm Act, which I know you all, Interfaith Alliance, are incredible partners on. And that is a wonderful piece of a bill, a piece of legislation that needs to pass that would prevent the misuse of our nation's leading religious freedom law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to be used to harm other people, whether it's Mm. to get around labor laws, to get around civil rights laws, to get around a government employee's responsibility not to discriminate, right? All these things would be stopped in their tracks if we could pass the Do No Harm Act. And honestly, we we lobbied on it before and we've had enough uh, co-sponsors in the House to pass the bill. So it's really like teed up to go far. We've never had a majority yet in the Senate, but we've had, you know, in the 30s of lawmakers. And honestly, can you imagine asking a lawmaker, will you please be a co-sponsor of the Do No Harm Act, saying religious freedom shouldn't be a license or a sword to harm others and having them say, sorry, like, no, I don't believe in that kind of religious freedom. Mm. It's a great bill. So we're excited to go lobby on that bill. Um, Yeah. And then the other thing that I'll just say is what wanted to tell the listeners, what our three keynotes are about. So the first one is hosted by Brad Onishi um, from Straight White American Jesus and author of Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and what comes next. And he is going to be um, speaking with Andrew Seidel, who works at uh, Americans United as our vice president for strategic communications, who's himself the author of the American Crusade, a book about what's happening right now at the Supreme Court um, and a previous book as well. And they're going to lead a really powerful conversation on white Christian nationalism and what we can all do about it, right? We cannot Mm. give up hope. So that's one of the panels, uh, the keynote panels. The other is Catherine Stewart, Paul, who I'm, who I know you know too, is an investigative reporter, and you know her work appears in the New York Times, NBC, The New Republic, New York Review of Books. She wrote many books too, and one of them is The Power Worshippers: Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. She is leading a keynote panel on the relationship between abortion rights, gender equity and religious freedom. And she will be speaking, and then we will have a panel that includes, um, I will be on it, and also one of our lead plaintiffs in the abortion lawsuit that we brought in Missouri, challenging their abortion bans under their state church state separation protections. This is Reverend Tracy Blackman, who I know is really quite well known, a leader in the UCC, United Church of Christ movement, in the Black Lives Matter movement, and in so many movements. She's incredible, and she's flying in to be at the conference for that one. And then the final paddle is going to be on LGBTQ equality and attacks on the LGBTQ community coming from religious extremists. And Kira Johnson, who's the executive director of the National LGBTQ Plus Task Force, a bisexual black woman who's a national expert on queer and reproductive rights issues, who's testified before the U.S. House. um, And she's appeared in all sorts of publications and she's wonderful. And she will be leading that keynote. So those are what the three keynotes are. All right. This sounds great. Let's talk a little bit about the lawsuit that you're bringing in Missouri uh, uh, against the abortion ban there. Talk talk about like 
who some of the plaintiffs are and some of the ideas behind that um, very uh, important initiative? Well, attacks on abortion are attacks on religious freedom because we all have different belief systems in this intentionally diverse country that has welcomed everyone from different shores and different backgrounds. And we should all be able to make our own decisions about our own bodies according to our own belief systems. So abortion right, abortion bans impose one narrow religious belief on all of us, and they take away our religious freedom. We haven't had to make a religious freedom argument around abortion rights in this country because abortion rights were until, as you know, this past summer, 49 years, my really my whole life basically protected under the Roe v. Wade decision and under this found sort of locus of privacy in the in the U.S. Constitution. So that's why you haven't sort of seen that argument abound, you know, in the courts, because it hasn't needed to. But now that that right was reversed by this Supreme Court, who are very sympathetic to religious extremists' agenda to impose their religious beliefs on all of us, we've taken this argument to court. And the first place we've gone is to Missouri, because Missouri has very strong state constitutional church-state separation protection. In fact, they're so strong that the state Supreme Court in Missouri has found them to be stronger than the federal church-state separation protections, which is great on every score. It means they're broad for our lawsuit. And it also means that this case has no reason to ever go higher than the Missouri State Supreme Court. It should never go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And frankly, we don't really want it to with the way the U.S. Supreme Court is reversing core freedoms and fundamental protections in in our constitution and in this country. So the other reason, Paul, besides for these really strong protections in the in the Missouri Constitution that we brought the case in Missouri is because the lawmakers in Missouri were incredibly bold in their in their religious extremism. Like they said the quiet part out loud. They said the part that lawmakers in this country when church state separation was more trendy. Right. When like John F.K. had to defend his bona fides around church-state separation when he was running for president, right? Those days, right, folks were being quieter about when they were trying to actually get around or instill and uh, impose their religious beliefs on everyone in the law. These days, though, these lawmakers put into the law a provision that said the Lord Almighty is the author of life. And they all, they boasted about how they were inserting their personal religious beliefs into the law. So it was a great state. And we brought the case on behalf of 14 clergy who, because of their own religious backgrounds, and I mean, these folks spanned, you know, uh, they were uh, Baptists and United Church of Christ pastors and um, the Episcopal Bishop, who's a wonderful gay Black bishop and um, reform rabbis and an Orthodox equivalent to an Orthodox Jewish equivalent to a rabbi, which is called a maharat. Um, and so this amazing, eclectic group of religious leaders all stood up in Christchurch Cathedral in St. Louis to launch this lawsuit that they brought because it's against their religious beliefs to ban abortion, and it's against their religious beliefs to impose one narrow religious view in America on all of us. Yeah. I mean, I like I like to, you know, just remember my mother who was a founder of family planning in Wisconsin. She was one of the people who like founded that those laws in Wisconsin. She was also the reason we went to church and the reason like she was a very, very dedicated Presbyterian uh, all her life. And she this, you know, a lot of this work was grounded in her her belief. And so this this idea that there's one way to think about this and that um, it. It, it dominates other people's beliefs, like my mother's. Uh, it feels very. Um, it feels like the, a perversion of religious freedom. I mean, you know, it's exactly kind of you know. So yeah, I think that I this mean, is a this is a great this is a you know I I guess the 
This is not going to be resolved soon, though. This is going to take a take a little while to get through the courts, or what? What is? You never know. I mean, you, you never know. Just because Missouri is one of the states, a lot of states are like this. That when you're suing under a constitution, a state constitutional question, the appeal can actually go. Once the case resolves at the at the entry level, can go directly to the state supreme court. So it it, it actually could wrap up sooner than a lot of court cases that go on and on and on. But right now we're sort of still in the motions phase. You know, they, of course, the the state filed a motion to dismiss. So we're responding to that. And, um, uh-huh. you know, we're still yeah. in the earlier phases of the case. Yeah. So let, let me ask you a question I like to ask all the, the folks who come on the show. In this moment of just so much turmoil, so much um, kind of... Honestly, a lot of people feeling a lot of despair. What gives you hope to continue the work that you do? Young people, like young people, Generation Z. I'm all about Gen Z. First thing, my kids are Gen Z. I once asked my son, what is it possibly like for your generation? Like, you were born the year of 9-11. You know, you've grown up with massive gun violence, with a climate crisis, right, with the exposure of all the tremendous deep-rooted racism in our society, with the exposure of the Me Too movement during a pandemic, you know, and I said to him, like, how do you think this affects you and all of your friends and your generation? And he said, you know, I actually think we are all completely, like, engaged and politically active because of it. And I think that's true. Don't you, Paul? I, I honestly, I've, I, I, I'm so um, impressed that you say that, and I've heard that from so many people. You know, the, the big like line that everybody's, oh, they just are paying attention to their phones, and oh, they don't, you know, it's like no, 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 no. There, you know, this is an engaged generation. This is a this is a generation that is really going to stand up and is not you know not going to tolerate. It's my my nieces and nephews. They just like honestly they have they just look around and say, "What are you talking about? Like yeah. you're anti anti LGBT? How can you be that? Like you know that's like the they just it's dumbfounding to me. And 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 so and they're they're also like just really clear about like we their their need to step up for racial justice around abortion rights. I mean they're like they're there they're there and they're they're in front of us and i i'm it's very impressive and i so i i love that answer i find that to be true and it's it's important for our listeners who's i think you know you know to to look around and 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 talk to gen z and find ways to you know support them in their work a hundred thousand percent and for our organizations, too. I mean, one of the things, Paul, that I found, I've been here as le- as the leader of Americans United for five years now. And I remember when I first started, I would go to supporters' offices, right, and visit them and talk about our issue. And I would walk out myself feeling bleak. And I thought to myself, like, hmm, I need to inspire hope, right, just like what you are, because I am hopeful. And I realized that we actually needed to turn some of our mission to go towards working with younger people to make Mm -hmm. sure that in all of their activism, they were understanding and valuing the importance of church state separation so that they could carry it forward. So we started a youth organizing fellowship program. Now this is our third class. So it's, we have 30 like incredible leader, young people we work with. We pay them a little bit every year. We train them in leadership skills. And then they're already like, they go out, they stand up at their, you know, if their government meetings where there's only Christian invocations, they get offended and they go talk. They're leading on LGBTQ actions, on racial justice actions. They're they're blowing me away. And Paul, the other program that we started um, at at Americans United is the Legal Academy, which is I don't know if we've even been able to talk so much about it, but it's our way of fighting back against what the Federalist Society has been doing for so long, and it's like the Summit for Religious Freedom on April 22nd through 24th at thesurf.org because um, it is something that we're doing in partnership with all of these other groups that do impact litigation like, like Americans United does. And it's to train and network younger people, a new generation of lawyers. This one is for all of our legal interns, Paul. And we bring them together for four days of in-person learning about strategy, 
philosophy, like judicial philosophy, hard litigating skills, but even more important than anything, networking with each other and with our generation. And then we continue it like with the summit so that we're hoping that we can have build a bench right, of people who are fighting for the rights of the people. And of course, that includes church-state separation, and, and it includes so many other issues. That is another example of how we need to come together in this country right now to save our democracy by fighting for church-state separation and fighting for all of the rights that go with it, helping each other out so that we have enough power to fight back against a movement that is destined to lose because their way is not the American way. Their mm. way is the anti-American way. And they are only so agitated and bothered in all the worst ways right now because they are losing overall mm. in mm. America. They've just been really emboldened. So that's how we're gonna win by believing in the power of our voices, believing in young people and empowering them and joining together like you and I are today. I love it. I love it. Rachel Lazar is president and CEO of Americans United, which is organizing the Summit for Religious Freedom in Washington, D.C. and online April 22nd to 24th. Get more information at www.thesrf.org. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you, Paul. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping State of Belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein as his production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I cannot wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.